Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Plus, don't forget about patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast where you can get all sorts of fun bonus content. First off, I have to give a huge thank you to Sal from the WrestleMania Salvation Podcast for joining the previous episode and helping me recap the Royal Rumble and Raw for more than five hours. That's a huge time commitment, especially for a podcast which isn't even your own. So once again, huge props to Sal for coming on and doing an amazing job. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would highly recommend that you do because it's pretty damn fantastic if I do say so myself. And while you're at it, please be sure to subscribe to the Rundown Wrestling Podcast feed because you'll get access to every episode of WrestleMania Salvation as well. Great stuff. So, with that being said, let's get into the show. However, before we dive into Raw, there is an important event that we have to cover first. If you listened to the previous episode of this podcast, you'll remember that Mankind revealed to the world on Raw that he did not actually say, I quit, during his match with The Rock at the Royal Rumble, but rather they played a clip over the PA system of Foley yelling, I quit, from an earlier promo. Because of that, Mankind then challenged The Rock to put his illegitimately won WWF title on the line in an empty arena match during Halftime Heat, a show which was given that name because it would air during halftime of Super Bowl 33. And so, before we get into Raw this week, I think it's only fitting that we cover their match at Halftime Heat first. But before we even get there, not only did the WWF give us Halftime Heat, but they also gave us a brief episode of Sunday Night Heat as well. The episode began with the corporation coming to the ring, followed by Shane McMahon, who introduced us to the newly corporate China. So let's take a listen to what the ninth wonder of the world has to say in her very first heel promo, and if we're lucky, perhaps some old friends will offer a rebuttal. Well, 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 what do you know, the opportunity to talk. Because that's what it's all about, guys. Right, opportunity? We all want to get ahead. DX wanted to get ahead. You know how they did it? Me. I was the force behind DX because I carried those four degenerates on my back for almost two years. But you know what? Even though I did that, Where's my gratification? What did they do for me? Let me answer that. Not a damn thing. You know, 
wasn't until the Royal Rumble when Vince McMahon came to me and he said, China, we appreciate you. China, you have something we want. China, you have something we need. That's appreciation. But you know what the difference is? Vince McMahon was willing to give in order to get. It's all about the mighty buck, fellas. It's called greed, and the buck stops here. Would have thought China would have had more moral fiber than that than to sell out. Appreciation? I got your appreciation, DX. Suck it, because I can Whoa. buy and sell you now like a bunch of cheap Wonderful job. You really pulled one over on us, Shane. You got us. I got to hand it to you. But you did it once. You got one shot. I guarantee you, Jack, it'll never happen again. And China, you wanted to be treated like an equal from the start. So myself and everybody else in DX Are you happy? Is that what you wanted to hear? China better than Triple H. China, you wanted to be treated like an equal, and we did it. The problem was we never were equals because the fact of the matter is the four of us are men. And no matter how bad you wanted a set, you could never get them. Well, I think Triple H trying to provoke China now. The war between DX and the corporation China, continues. you're right. For you, it's all about the money. Because you're nothing but a $2. Wow. Shane obviously Shane, telling China Shane to control McMahon. herself. You want a Bronco ride me last week? You Nimrod? Well, I guarantee you one thing. I will get my hands on you eventually, and when I do, I'm going to take that silver spoon out of your mouth, and I'm going to shove it straight up your... You, like, wait, wait, this is heat. You can't say that on heat. Oh, I don't think so, X-Pac. Now, you're up there hiding behind all that DX beef. You don't have the guts to come down here, first of all, and everybody knows that I can take you. Pretty tough with the corporation behind him, that's for sure. Now, Triple H, 
Since you come down here right on stage and you're trying to rattle everybody's cage, I got an idea. And of course, with my father's permission, tomorrow night on Raw, Triple H, your cage is going to be rattled as you enter a steel cage where it will be Triple H versus Corporate Cage. Wow. X-Pac made an overture have to Kane and now for your DX buddies. I have one word. Corporate. It's Corporate China now. And Triple H stares down at the Big Red Machine. His opponent tomorrow night inside a steel cage. So there you have it. China flat out abandoned DX over the almighty dollar. I guess now we have an explanation and it's pretty much the exact one that you would expect. One thing I couldn't help but wonder, though, at one point there you heard X-Pac say to Shane, quote, I will get my hands on you eventually, to which I must ask, why not now? I mean, DX is literally standing at the top of the ramp while the corporation is in the ring. If they wanted to, they could just head on down there right now and beat their asses, but hey, wrestling logic, I suppose. Anyway, Shane McMahon then proceeds to add further insult to injury by booking a match for tomorrow night on Raw, Triple H versus Corporate Kane, inside of a steel cage. We're just two weeks away from Stone Cold Steve Austin stepping into a cage with Vince McMahon at St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but apparently we're also getting a free cage match on Raw tomorrow night as well. Good stuff. Other than that, the only matches on Heat featured the big boss man defeating Jeff Jarrett and Ken Shamrock defeating Owen Hart, so even though Bossman and Shamrock lost their WWF tag team titles to Jarrett and Owen on Raw last week, they gained a bit of revenge by beating them in singles action here on Heat. And by the way, during the Owen-Shamrock match, we got another appearance by Coco Beware in the Blue Blazer outfit, but this time he climbed to the top rope and accidentally got crotched on the turnbuckle when Owen bounced off the ropes. Not nearly as successful as his run-in on Raw last week when he clobbered Shamrock with a guitar, which allowed Owen to pin him and win the titles for his team. So yes, that was the first half of Heat, but now let's get into the empty arena match for the WWF Championship. As a reminder, it is Super Bowl Sunday, January 31st, 1999, and we are pre-taped five days in advance from the Tucson Convention Center in Tucson, Arizona. Some of the other events which have taken place in this same arena include two episodes of Raw, six episodes of SmackDown, and nine episodes of Superstars, but none of them all that noteworthy. When we cut inside the arena, Mankind is already standing in the ring, and he is still sporting a white bandage on his head as a result of The Rock bludgeoning him with ten chair shots to the skull at the Royal Rumble. And on that note, this episode of Heat was taped on January 26th, which means we're only two days removed from the Rumble. So after all that punishment Mick Foley took, he's right back at it 48 hours later. Brain cells, who needs them? Who needs them? So yes, The Rock then emerges from backstage holding his WWF title. And he isn't alone because Vince McMahon is right there beside him. However, instead of standing by at ringside, the chairman goes over to the empty commentary table, grabs a headset, and proceeds to call the match, just like he did for far too many years. Except this time, he's doing it solo, and I think we can all be thankful that Vince wasn't calling matches by himself during those new generation days when he was on commentary. So the bell rings, and right off the bat, the match feels strange because you can hear both men yelling at each other in the ring since there are no fans to drown out the noise. 
I suppose in a situation like this, both men have to be pretty discreet when they're calling spots. And early on, Mankind takes the advantage by hitting Rock with a double-arm DDT, followed by putting Mr. Socko in his mouth, but the People's Champ rolls out of the ring to escape. Foley then follows that up with a baseball slide to Rock, followed by a swinging neckbreaker on the arena floor. He covers Rock, and referee Earl Hebner makes the count, but it only gets two. Also, as soon as Rock kicks out, he gets bleeped for saying, "Oh shit! So there's another disadvantage when there's no crowd noise. The censors have to edit out more naughty words. Mankind then smacks Rock's face into the commentary table, pausing to tell Vince that he's coming for him next. Foley attempts to Irish whip Rock into the barricade, but Rock reverses it, and Mankind's momentum causes him to crash through the barricade and right into the front row of seats where the high-paying fans would normally be sitting. And speaking of those seats, Rock quickly throws Mankind onto them, then tosses a few more chairs on top of him for good measure. Because clearly, The Rock hasn't incorporated enough chairs into his matches with Mankind. From there, Rock walks over to Vince on commentary, grabs his headset, and starts talking trash, completely turning his back on Foley in the process. However, we then get the pretty funny visual of Mankind's hand, with Sokka on it, of course, popping up in the background from under several of the chairs. Vince attempts to warn Rock, but it's too late. Foley puts Sokka into Rock's mouth while he's still wearing the headset so we can hear Rock's anguished moaning while Mankind's hand is down his throat. Eventually, Rock manages to escape by hitting Mankind with a low blow, and he starts walking away through one of the empty aisles. Of course, Foley catches up to him, and they brawl for a bit until Rock climbs the stairs and hides in one of the concourse areas. When Mankind catches up to him, Rock nails him in the head with a trash can, and then Rock kicks Mankind in the stomach, causing him to fall down the stairs in the aisle. And it is at this point that I should mention they're now in a section of the arena where the chairs are bolted down to the ground. Near ringside, you can just pick them up and move them, but because they're further up in the arena, the chairs are fixed to the ground. Why do I mention this? Because when Foley is rolling down the stairs, he bonks his head against some of the chairs, and since they're bolted down, they aren't moving when his head smacks against them. Because clearly, Mick Skull needed to take even more punishment just two days after the I Quit match. So Rock and Mankind then head down another set of stairs toward one of the concourse areas, and from there, we cut back to Shane McMahon and Kevin Kelly in the arena full of fans where the first part of Sunday Night Heat was filmed. Shane narrates some of the highlights from the empty arena match so far, but then we cut back to Rock and Mankind, who have now made their way toward the kitchen area of the building. Rock grabs a broom and snaps it over Mankind's back, and then he whips Foley into a nearby stack of cotton candy. And some of Rock's lines here are actually pretty funny, so I'll just go ahead and play this part for you. And he's not the only one with a sweet tooth. And from there, we get even more amusing comedy from The Rock as he takes Mr. Sacco off of Foley's hand and, well, I'll just let The Rock explain where he puts him. Oh, now look at this. Look what we got here. Mr. Sacco. Mr. Sacco, The Rock. Mr. Sacco. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, Rock. No, great one. No, no, no. Don't put me in the oven. Don't put me in the oven. Oh! Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
That's right, as you heard there, Rock threw Sokko into a nearby oven, and then he put Mankind's hand into it as well. Now I should note that if you watch this match, you can clearly see that the oven is in no way turned on when they're doing this spot, but I guess they don't have to risk burning someone when they can just go back and dub in some cartoony sizzling sound effects instead. Sure, why not? Why not? Continuing on through the kitchen, Rock threw Mankind into a tray of lemonade, followed by smacking him in the head with a loaf of bread, and he went for the cover, but Earl Hebner only counted to two before Foley kicked out. Mankind then regained the momentum by swinging a bag of popcorn and hitting Rock in the head with it. Now a quick side note here, Mankind and Owen Hart once had a match at a house show in San Jose, and they knew that Dave Meltzer was in the crowd. So Owen made it his mission to have a match that was so bad, Meltzer would give it negative stars. And one of the spots in that match featured Owen hitting Mankind with a bag of popcorn. I'd like to think that Mick had that in mind as a tribute when he incorporated the popcorn into the empty arena match here. And for the record, yes, both Foley and Meltzer have gone on record as saying that the Owen popcorn story is true. Meltzer actually tweeted about it back on January 17th of this year. When a fan asked him about Owen using the popcorn, Meltzer responded, quote, That was him and Mick Foley in San Jose trying to get me to give them a negative star match, except the crowd ended up liking the match they were trying to tank. So yes, apparently Owen Hart can't have a bad match, even when he tries. I'd believe it. Anyway, getting back to the empty arena match, Mankind and Rock exit the kitchen, and then they wander into the craft services area where several of the crew members are sitting at tables. And hopefully those poor crew guys already ate, because Rock and Foley then start brawling near the table where all their food is set up, and they knock it all over the floor in the process. Tragic. From there, they wander down the hallway a bit further and head into someone's office, where we get another entertaining moment from The Rock. Is it ever? And only in the World Wrestling Federation. The first time ever in World Wrestling Federation history, a match has taken place in an empty arena. Falls count anywhere. What do you say? Smackdown Hotel, corner, know your old boulevard, Jabroni Drive. No, man, I can't talk. She's a little tied up right now. The Rock with a great sense of humor. That's what makes him who he is. So after The Rock chokes mankind with the cord of the phone, he sees a young woman cowering in fear due to all the craziness she's witnessing. So Rock does what any normal person would do in that situation. He calls her a, quote, big fat piece of trash and tells her to get lost. And something tells me that the People's Champ is going to have to undergo sensitivity training over the next few days. From there, both men then exit the office and start brawling outside the building near the loading dock. And at this point, we see that apparently Mankind had an extra Mr. Sokka lying around somewhere because he does indeed manage to put it into the Rock's mouth once again. So Foley takes Rock down to the ground with Sokka, but then he looks up and realizes that he put Rock down right near a forklift, which is currently lifting some pallets with beer kegs on them. And that gives Mick an idea, so let's pick it up from there. Mankind really hasn't cinched in. That paralyzing maneuver of mankind is taking it 
its effect on the rock. What the hell? Oh, you're gonna love this. What's mankind doing? Please? What's he going to do now? He's going to run over him. Mankind's going to run over Rock. That's what he's going to do. Down! Down! So, yes, what you just heard there was Mankind commandeering a forklift from its driver, lowering the pallet on top of the rock, and then pinning him on top of it to become the new World Wrestling Federation champion just mere days after he lost the belt at the Royal Rumble. And infamously, they have to do some clever editing here, presumably because they didn't trust Mick Foley to operate the vehicle without accidentally crushing the rock. So instead, we get what can best be described as a forklift eye view perspective as we see The Rock staring up into the camera. And after a quick cut to Foley, we then get another cut back to Rock, where we see that the forklift pallet is now on top of him. It looks pretty shitty, to be honest, since it isn't a camera view we're ever used to seeing from the WWF, but hey, I suppose necessity is the mother of invention. So yes, Mick Foley is your new WWF champion for the second time, thanks to some, uh, clever thinking. How was the match overall? Actually, I'd say it was really fun. It's pretty much just a garbage brawl throughout the arena, sometimes incorporating actual garbage. But it's elevated by both men, and Rock in particular, who is just slinging amusing one-liners all throughout the match. In my opinion, though, it loses points for the goofy forklift ending, not just because of the awful camera angle, but also because it's a match for the most prized belt in all of fucking wrestling, and it changes hands thanks to a piece of moving equipment. If this was the finish to a hardcore title match, by all means, I'd be 100% on board with a forklift finish, but not the WWF title. Just yuck. But as for the match as a whole, there's never really a dull moment throughout, so yes... Despite the shitty ending, if you have about 20 minutes to kill, I definitely recommend giving it a look. And on the note of watching the match, the WWF and the USA Network clearly came up with the idea for this special episode of Heat in order to get some more eyeballs on the product once the Super Bowl went to halftime. So the question is, did it work? Well, as a certain beer-swilling Texas redneck might say, all hell yeah. Halftime Heat scored a whopping 6.6 rating, which made it the single most watched wrestling match in the history of cable television up to this point. So, uh, yes, I would call that a success. For the sake of comparison, this is at a time when Raw is routinely scoring ratings in the mid-fives, so Heat also just beat the flagship show by a whole ratings point. The WWF has taken over the world at this point, folks, and you'll all just have to accept that. 
And speaking of Super Bowl Sunday, not only did the WWF air halftime heat that night, but they also paid roughly $1.6 million to air a 30-second commercial during the third quarter of the big game. The basic gist of it is that several of the company's biggest stars, Stone Cold, The Rock, Sable, The Undertaker, are walking through WWF headquarters and talking about people have the wrong impression of the company as complete chaos is occurring all around them. In fact, I'll play it for you right here. Most people have the wrong impression about the World Wrestling Federation. We're a non-violent form of entertainment. We never use sex to enhance our image. As athletes, we understand the importance of being positive role models. We're good at wholesome family entertainment. We're trying to make the world a better place for mankind. WWF Attitude. Get it? As you can tell, the ad is very tongue-in-cheek, with a couple amusing visuals such as Kane standing by a conference room holding a cup of coffee, and a referee literally being depicted as a blind man aimlessly walking around. And of course, we get the famous final visual where someone is thrown out of the building's windows, landing right in front of Vince McMahon, who turns to the camera and asks us, the viewer, Get it? Personally, I think it's a pretty genius bit of marketing on their part. It's the WWF's way of sarcastically steering into a lot of the complaints which have been leveled against them, while at the same time acknowledging that they're, quote-unquote, in on the joke. And what better place to project that image than during the Super Bowl, which, by the way, had almost 84 million viewers on this night. For those scoring at home, that would be roughly one-third of the population of the entire United States at the time. So I would say that spending the $1.6 million to air that commercial was a pretty calculated risk at the time. So as for Super Bowl Sunday, thumbs up all around for a very successful night of television for the World Wrestling Federation. But on that note, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, February 1st, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Convention Center in Phoenix, Arizona. And yes, for those of you scoring at home, this is indeed the second straight week that Raw has taken place in Phoenix. Last week, they were in the 18,000-seat America West Arena, but this week they're in the smaller 7,000-seat Convention Center. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include... Well, pretty much nothing. As far as I could tell, this is the only televised wrestling show to ever take place in this building. However, in 2010, it was the site of WrestleMania Access before WrestleMania 26, so I suppose that's something. We open the show with highlights from last night's halftime heat, and from there we kick into footage from earlier tonight, where Shane McMahon was backstage speaking with Ken Shamrock, the big boss man, and Test. Shane tells them that Vince is away in Victoria, Texas tonight, where he will apparently be confronting Stone Cold Steve Austin, so because his father is away... Shane once again has the keys to the kingdom. You may recall that Vince also left Shane in charge of an episode of Raw in late December, and that was the episode where Shane decided to book himself into a match with Mankind, so I guess we'll see if the boy wonder ends up being too big for his britches again tonight. So Shane asks the corporation members if any of them have seen Kane, and yes, once again, Shane refers to him as the Big Red Retard. At this point, it really seems like they're trying to turn that into an official nickname for Kane, which obviously doesn't age very well 19 years later. Yikes. So as it turns out, no one has seen Kane yet, which causes Shane to get a bit huffy with Shamrock, Bossman, and Test. From there, Shane knocks on China's locker room door and yells, We're up! Let's go! 
and the corporation starts walking toward the ring. However, as they're about to walk through the curtain, Terry Runnels and Jacqueline are coming from the opposite direction, which results in the boss man accidentally bumping into Terry. And boss man, ever the gentleman, puts his finger in Terry's face and says, quote, Say excuse me, bitch. Quite the dick move on boss man's part there, and yet, by the end of 1999, this won't even rank in the top 20 on the list of horrible things he manages to accomplish. Looking forward to that. So from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include... Porn 24-7 Suck Tits If you can read this, your seats suck. Moist 316 China look like a man Stone Cold's Love Slave Oh, we know, so shut the hell up Undertaker, show me your dark side Eat more lamb Sacco, with a cartoon drawing of a scrotum Vinnie Mac, Pimp of the Year 99 I Come for China, with come of course, C-U-M I Want Shamrock's Sister Can You Smell the Wind the Rock is Breaking and, amusingly, I saw at least three signs pertaining to wrestlers from other companies. WWF Needs New Jack, WCW Let Jericho Go, and Giant Stay in WCW. I guess we'll see how those turn out. So after we scan the crowd, sure enough, Shane McMahon, Ken Shamrock, The Big Boss Man, and Test do indeed walk to the ring, where Shane is immediately showered with loud, asshole chants, which I just realized we haven't heard in a while, actually. Shane thanks the other corporation members for accompanying him to the ring, but then he says that, unlike X-Pac, he doesn't need a bunch of other people to protect him, so he then sends the corporation back to the locker room area where they came from. At this point, we're also informed that a steel cage is hanging above the ring because, as you recall from Shane's promo on Sunday Night Heat, Triple H will indeed face Kane in a cage match tonight on Raw. One quick thing to note, the cage on Raw tonight is actually a mesh cage, similar to Hell in a Cell, whereas the cage Stone Cold and Vince will fight in at the upcoming St. Valentine's Day Massacre pay-per-view is actually the classic cage with steel bars. Funny enough, though, since this is now the Attitude Era, instead of the old-school blue bar steel cage, the one used at the pay-per-view actually has black bars instead because, you know, tradition is fucking lame. So anyway, Shane McMahon is now alone in the ring with a microphone, so let's take a listen to what he has to say. I mean, he now, is for those of you that don't know, my pops, Vinnie Mac, is on special assignment. Oh, yes. He's down in Victoria, Texas, the hometown of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, that means the Rattlesnake's going to be beheaded tonight. Now make no mistake about it, Vince is down there on a mission. He has a purpose. And that purpose is to confront and to provoke Stone Cold Steve Austin into breaking his contract. Because remember, if Stone Cold Steve Austin lays one little itty-bitty finger on my father, Austin is fired from the World Wrestling Federation on the spot. Or Austin's going to have to get in the cage with Mr. McMahon. If by some miracle, Austin does show some restraint, then Austin, I definitely, definitely do not envy you. Because in two weeks' time, at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Austin, my pops is going to beat your ass from one side of the cage to the other. Oh, yeah. 
missed Look the two weeks. Bring that bad boy down. Oh, yeah. Come on, bring it down. Austin, you think my father would run from you? Oh, no. There's that Austin, ominous do you cage. Think for one second. Now, my pot, it's my Kane pot's tonight. Kane versus Triple H in that oh, cage no. uh -oh. tonight, He's King. Not. He's going to beat your ass again. Leave you laying right here. Walk out the door in a cage. Up in the back, victorious. Now tonight, King. right here on Raw, ladies look at and that. gentlemen, will you, shut you up? will see it. King, look! A prelude! It's X-Pac to the cage! what's going on. Because right here Shane on doesn't Raw, see him. Triple look H it. is going to take on none other than Corporate Kane to give you guys a little taste, a little taste of what's going to happen. Now look at this, now this is, this is in the locker room area. DX has got the corporation. The corporation is being attacked by DX. Shane is left alone in the ring. If you ever, ever get in my face again, I will Shane break you see in half like dust. The Shane, cage is lowering. He's behind you. It's, a, it's on the cage. It's, now he sees him. X-Pac, revenge on his mind. I was just joking. I was just joking. I was just joking. It was, was last week on Raw where Shane was berating Kane. You want to go with me? And oh, X-Pac. Yeah? X-Pac asked Kane to join Obviously, DX. Kane said, skills, no way. You haven't seen my skills. You slammed X-Pac. And then X-Pac delivered the Bronco Buster to Shane. <laughs> I should say Shane delivered the Bronco Buster to X-Pac. Revenge now on X-Pac's mind. And here we go. Shane needs some help out here. Quick. Look who's here now, King. Here's his help. Yes. The newest member of the corporation, China. Good job. China from behind. The newest member. So, as you heard there, Shane requested for the cage to be lowered from the ceiling, but what he didn't realize was that his nemesis, the WWF European Champion X-Pac, was actually sitting on top of the cage the entire time. Huh. So, someone was lowered down from the ceiling in a borderline unsafe manner. I wonder if we'll ever see anything like that again. Probably not. Probably not. 
Once the cage was put around the ring, X-Pac then jumped down and confronted the boss's son. We then also got a quick cut backstage where we could see the other members of DX brawling with the corporation, so it appeared that the backup for both Shane and X-Pac was preoccupied. So Shane tried to attack X-Pac, but Pac quickly got the better of him, knocking Shane down in one of the corners and presumably setting him up for a Bronco Buster. Instead, however, the newest member of the corporation, China, headed down to the ring and got in X-Pac's face. Pac quickly turned back around and hit Shane with a spinning heel kick, but then... China nailed Pac with a low blow. From there, Shane and China put the boots to X-Pac, and Shane even threw Pac face-first into the side of the cage. Shane then held his own face to sell the effects of the spinning heel kick, which resulted in China attempting to comfort Shane by hugging him, drawing massive boos from the crowd. Shane and China then walked backstage as X-Pac was left lying in the ring, and that was how our opening segment came to a close. As I said last time on the Mega episode with Sal, I had completely forgotten about this corporate China heel turn, but it's certainly off to a very strong start here. That hug she gave to Shane got mega heat from the fans, and it's kind of funny to see how quickly they're willing to go along with this heel turn. Keep in mind, just two weeks ago, China was humiliating Mark Henry in that infamous Sammy segment, but now here she is, just days later, a corporate stooge, and the fans are totally willing to treat her like a heel. Without getting off on too much of a tangent, that's one of the things I dislike about the modern product. It doesn't matter if you're a face or a heel, because the fans aren't as willing to go along with the creative team's direction. Here in the present day, Becky Lynch turned heel on Charlotte at SummerSlam a few weeks ago, but you'd never know it because the fans were cheering her on so loudly you'd think she was Hogan slamming Andre or something. But I suppose that's a complaint for another day. So anyway, after that opening beatdown of X-Pac, they show us the WWF's Super Bowl commercial in its entirety, and then we go to, uh, more commercials. When we come back, we see Vince McMahon in a country bar somewhere out in Victoria, Texas, along with Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, who are both dressed up like cowboys. Vince tells them they both look ridiculous, but then they head over to the bar area, so let's see if Vince is successful in finding Stone Cold. Hey, Tux, Tux, have you seen Stone Cold Steve Austin? I understand that he frequents this uh, establishment. Reckon not. You reckon not. Now, either you've seen Stone Cold Steve Austin, yes, or you haven't seen Stone Cold Steve Austin, no. Where I come from, we don't reckon. So now what's it going to be? Well, I reckon y'all better get your asses out of here. What the hell kind of people are you anyhow? Get I, out of here, you I asked a simple question. Have you seen Stone Cold? I'll find him. Let's go. Come on, let's, let's go. go. Let's I'll go. find him. It's ugly if you're done. So, yes, Vince pesters the female bartender about Stone Cold's whereabouts, which results in her reaching under the bar and pulling out a baseball bat. And honestly, when I saw her reach down, I thought for sure she was going to pull out a shotgun, but no, just a bat. I would give them props for not falling into that whole every Texan has a gun stereotype, but, uh, well, just, uh, just wait for later. So anyway, Vince and the Stooges then exit the bar, presumably to go look for Austin elsewhere. From there, we go back to the arena for our first match of the evening, Billy Gunn versus Val Venus, with your WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock joining the commentary team. Yes, you heard that correctly. Ken Shamrock is on commentary. Clearly, they're really playing to his strong suits tonight. 
In case you need a quick recap, last week Val debuted his newest adult movie, which starred Ryan Shamrock, who is, of course, Ken Shamrock's sister. An irate Shamrock then came to ringside and smacked Val in the back with a chair, but Val didn't see that it was Shamrock who did it. As a result, when Billy Gunn ran to ringside to provide some backup, Val mistakenly thought that it was actually Mr. Ass who hit him with the chair, so Val attacked Billy instead, leading to tonight's match. Billy Gunn, by the way, now has his own shirt, which says, quote, Four words, check out my ass. I'm guessing that one doesn't end up being a big seller. So as soon as the match begins, Val extends a hand to Mr. Ass, seemingly apologizing for last week's mix-up, to which Billy responds by mooning Val. Apparently, apology not accepted. So while Shamrock is doing commentary, he informs Michael Cole that he has promised his sister that he wouldn't lay a hand on Val Venus, so I guess that somewhat explains why Shamrock isn't beating Val's ass right about now. But of course, Jerry Lawler is no help in this situation because he keeps reminding Shamrock that Val's hands were all over Ryan's body, seemingly trying to get on Ken's nerves. And eventually, the King's strategy appears to work. With Billy Gunn down on the mat, Val then took the opportunity to do his usual gyrations for the crowd. So Shamrock grabbed a chair, ran into the ring, and nailed Val in the back, presumably giving the big Valboski a disqualification victory. Billy Gunn then punched Shamrock and grabbed the chair away from him, resulting in Shamrock running up the ramp. However, just like last week, Val then recovered from the chair shot, and when he got back to his feet, he saw Billy Gunn holding the chair. And once again, Val incorrectly assumed that it was Mr. Ass who smacked him with the chair, so Val kicked Billy's injured ankle and then hit him in the back with the chair as well. That's right, folks. This whole Shamrock, Val, Billy feud is basically all due to miscommunication. Well, miscommunication and porn, I suppose. We then go backstage where your new WWF champion, Mankind, is speaking with a random WWF official while, of all people, Max Mini is standing nearby. In case you need a reminder as to who Max Minnie is, he's a midget wrestler, or little person wrestler if you prefer, standing a whole 3 feet 7 inches tall, who gained a fair bit of popularity in late 97 and early 98 when the WWF briefly started a minis division. Max Minnie actually had one of the more amusing moments during this time frame when he left the ring during his match at Ground Zero, jumped into Jerry Lawler's lap, and tried on his crown, all while Jim Ross mocked the king by yelling, Pretend it's Brian when he was a baby! Great stuff. Max previously wore a blue and yellow suit with a mask to hide his identity, but in this backstage segment, he's actually just standing there in a shirt and jeans and no mask whatsoever. So if you ever wondered what Max Minnie looked like out of costume, check out this episode of Raw. But now, this is where things get a tad bizarre. If you recall, Vince McMahon had previously offered a $100,000 bounty to whichever wrestler eliminated Stone Cold Steve Austin from the Royal Rumble match. Because Vince himself was the man to do it, he decided to give the money to The Rock, since Rock had come to the ring to help Vince eliminate Stone Cold. However, last week, Mankind stole The Rock's $100,000, so that takes us to this segment where Foley is speaking with a random WWF official as Max Minnie stands around nearby. Shane's trust fund. No, I don't want to buy that. I just want to rent him for three days. Well, how can you rent Minnie? 
My kids are going to love this guy. I'll take him over. I have nothing for three oh, wait a minute. He's not going to tickle me, Elmo. How much money are we talking about? Well, how much you got? You got $487 dollarinis. Take it or leave it. Uh, we're having a heck well, of a good time. Okay, take him. Come here, little guy. Come on. Make him make so yes, as you just heard there, mankind is using the rock's money to traffic in human slavery. Yes, he just purchased the services of Max Mini from some random dude standing by backstage. And despite the fact that he's in possession of $100,000, mankind offers Max Mini's handler a whopping $487 to rent the little guy for three days. Well, Foley always did have the reputation of being cheap, I suppose. And after a commercial break, we cut elsewhere backstage, where we see The Rock talking to Vince McMahon on an awesome 1999 cell phone. And at this point, the WWF actually gets a bit clever, as they bring in a quick split screen so we can see Rock on one side and Vince on the other. And oh, by the way, Rock manages to refer to Mick Foley as, quote, this big, fat, retarded mankind. So it wasn't enough for Rock to constantly call Kane the big red retard, but now he's painting mankind with that brush as well. Good lord. So anyway, The Rock complains to Vince about fully stealing his money, and that is pretty much the end of that segment. From there, we head back into the arena, where Kevin Kelly is standing at the top of the ramp with the manager of the new WWF Tag Team Champions, Deborah. Kevin Kelly, by the way, is rocking a ludicrous Fu Manchu mustache at this point, as though he was Hulk Hogan or something. It looks gross. So Deborah only speaks for a few seconds until she gets interrupted by Mark Henry. If you recall last week on Raw, Sexual Chocolate actually did the same thing during a backstage interview with Deborah, where she informed him that she may indeed be interested in him. So this week, Mark proceeds to hand Deborah a rose, and then he informs her that, quote, I'm the kind of chocolate that melts in your mouth, not in your hand. Alrighty then. Unfortunately for Mark Henry, that causes the new WWF Tag Team Champions Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart to emerge from backstage and jump him from behind. They smack Mark in the head with the tag belts, then put the boots to him for good measure as Deborah looks on and laughs. Apparently, she may not have as much of a sweet tooth as she had initially claimed. We then cut backstage again, where Mankind is sitting at a table with Kurgan and giving him financial advice. He says the economy is strong and it's a buyer's market, but Kurgan says that he has no money to invest. So, of course, Foley proceeds to give Kurgan some of The Rock's money. Nice idea in theory, but I think we all know that he's probably just going to spend it on about 30 pairs of tie-dyed pants. And after commercial break, because this is clearly a moment we'll never get tired of reliving, they show a replay from weeks ago on Raw when D'Lo Brown walked toward the pregnant Terry Runnels, which caused her to accidentally slip and fall off the ring apron, resulting in a miscarriage. Yes, please, whatever you do, don't let us forget this brilliant angle. And from there, D'Lo Brown then walks to the ring, accompanied by the aforementioned Terry Runnels and Jacqueline. Terry grabs a mic and says that they need to teach a pig a lesson, referring to the big boss man who called Terry a bitch earlier tonight. D'Lo asks Terry when she's finally going to stop manipulating him, to which Jerry Lawler on commentary says, quote, She lost her baby, man! I mean, I guess when you put it that way, he kind of has a point. So yes, the big boss man then does indeed emerge from backstage, but a reluctant D'Lo makes it clear to him that he doesn't want to wrestle him. He says that PMS is making him do this, 
but Bossman doesn't care, he just wants to fight. So the bell rings, and we are underway. As a quick side note, with Bossman wearing his flak jacket and Dilo wearing his black chest protector, these two almost look like they could be original members of the S.H.I.E.L.D. 13 years in advance. Which group would have been better? I'll allow you to judge. But clearly the answer is the actual S.H.I.E.L.D. So this was another pretty short match with a rather strange finish. Dilo hit Bossman with the lowdown, his top rope frog splash, but PMS jumped up on the ring apron to distract referee Jimmy Corderas. Dilo then walked over to PMS to ask them what the hell they were doing, but when he turned back around, the boss man hit him with the boss man slam. Corderas made the count, and that was enough to give the victory to the big boss man. And after the three count was registered, Terry and Jackie high-fived each other as though making Dilo lose was part of their plan. And I say this seems strange because, as we saw earlier, the boss man bumped into Terry and called her a bitch, but apparently Terry was willing to forgive that. I guess, in the grand scheme of things, you're more likely to harbor a grudge over the man who caused your miscarriage as opposed to the man who called you a bitch. Fair enough. And then, to make matters even worse for Dilo, the boss man grabbed his nightstick and started beating the crap out of him with it. However, at that point... Mark Henry ran out from backstage and chased the boss man away. So we literally just saw Sexual Chocolate get his ass kicked by Jared and Owen in the previous segment, but now he's injecting himself into the D'Lo PMS feud as well. There's that Attitude Era booking for you, folks. Wrestlers involved in multiple feuds that end up going nowhere. So from there, we cut to another bar somewhere in Victoria, Texas, where Patterson and Briscoe approach two women who were playing pool. Patterson hits on one of them, file that under, not fooling anybody, but she responds to his advances by kneeing him in the crotch. Vince McMahon then shows up and tells them that he's found Austin, so it appears that we have us a cliffhanger. After a commercial break, we go back into the arena for what Michael Cole calls, and I quote, an audition for TV executives to see how a male dance review will do on TV. And the star of this male dance review? None other than the blue meanie who dances at the top of the ramp for roughly 10 seconds. Why such a short amount of time? Well, because he gets jumped from behind by gold dust. In case you need a reminder, last week the blue meanie dressed up as blue dust, took head from gold dust, and returned it to Al Snow. And it appears that gold dust is none too happy about that because he tosses meanie into the ring, props him up in one of the corners, gets a running start, and yes he nails him in the balls with shattered dreams. Goldust then heads backstage as Meanie is left holding his crotch, and that is the end of the segment. And it was at this point that I realized something important. This episode of Raw is pretty fucking terrible. If I had to grade it on a scale of jobber to megastar, at this point, I'd firmly classify it as a Salvatore Sincere. So after that blue meanie brilliance, we cut backstage to the trainer's room where Dr. Francois Petit is examining D'Lo Brown's neck as Mark Henry looks on. And it is at this point that some rather interesting information comes to light. You know what I'm talking about, Dr. Terry Reynolds. Uh, Terry Reynolds leaving uh, a baby in the ring? Being uh, pregnant? What are you talking about? Uh, what are you talking about? Uh, she has never been pregnant. Never. What, what are you talking about, Doc? What about Terry Reynolds? What are you talking about, Doc? Doc, 
How do you know she wasn't pregnant? Tell I me, doctor. I examined her. I know she was not pregnant. Doc, doc, don't you dare. Come don't, on, guys. Don't you dare, Kate Fabian. You better start shooting with me here. Was Terry or was Terry ever pregnant at all? She has never been pregnant. She you do not. I you. I examined her. She was not what pregnant. What a she was witch Terry Reynolds is. Doodle, you're neck. Okay, so let's unpack a couple things here. Number one, despite the fact that Terry Runnels is a patient of his, Dr. Francois Petit refers to her as Terry Reynolds multiple times in this segment. Number two, Dr. Petit, despite being the head doctor for the WWF, has apparently not been watching Ross since October when Terry first announced her pregnancy. And what makes that even more bizarre is the fact that we saw him tending to Terry backstage the night she suffered her quote-unquote miscarriage. Infamously, he's the doctor who says, I I don't know, when Terry says she's worried that she lost her baby. So what the fuck happened there? Did Dr. Petit develop amnesia over the past month? Number three, I know this is supposed to be a serious segment, but Dr. Petit's French accent did give me a bit of a chuckle, particularly when he says, I know she was not pregnant. Number four, in real life, Dr. Petit is actually a chiropractor, so when he says that he examined Terry, I feel like he may have crossed some sort of ethical line. I'm just saying, if your chiropractor is looking into your lady business, something has likely gone seriously wrong. Number five, we get that classic Vince Russo hallmark where someone has to use insider wrestling terms, in this case D'Lo Brown saying, don't you dare kayfabe me, you better start shooting with me here. And of course, because this is wrestling, when D'Lo says the doc better shoot with him, the whole thing is, of course, a work. Try not to have a stroke when you work that one out in your head. But okay, obviously the big picture here is that Terry Runnels not only faked her pregnancy, but also faked her miscarriage, with seemingly her only goal being to manipulate D'Lo Brown into doing her dirty work. And I mean, honestly, if you're going to go to all that trouble of creating that backstory, you might want to try to manipulate a bigger fish. Just saying, D'Lo isn't even at the intercontinental title level at this point. Might want to aim a bit higher. But before we wrap up this segment entirely, there is one more piece of information I learned while doing some research here. In real life, yes, Dr. Francois Petit is indeed the head doctor of the WWF at this point in time, despite the fact that he is, in fact, a chiropractor, and needless to say, it's certainly debatable as to whether or not that particular field even counts as actual medicine, but we'll put that aside. So yes, Dr. Petit is their head doctor, but before he arrived in the WWF, he had a very interesting gig. Dr. Francois Petit, and I swear this is true, played Sub-Zero in the 1995 Mortal Kombat movie. I had no idea about that until I started researching him for this episode, but yes, the head doctor of the WWF played a martial artist who had the power to uh, control ice or something. Pretty crazy stuff. Although that does make me wonder why WCW never signed him to feud with Glacier, but I suppose that's a whole other story. So anyway, needless to say, if I was in the WWF at this point in time, I'd probably be wondering why the hell we didn't have a doctor with, shall we say, better qualifications. I mean, sure, you could have a professional who practices medicine and dedicates his life to helping others. Or you could have a guy who can break a few pieces of wood with his arm. Tomato, tomato. And yes, I just spent way too much time breaking down a minute-long backstage segment, and admittedly, that's because my mind has been wandering a bit, because this episode of Raw is garbage. If I had to grade it on a scale of jobber to megastar, at this point, I'd firmly classify it as a man-mountain rock. So after commercial break, we go back to the arena for our next match, 
Draws versus Kurgan, who is accompanied by Golga and Giant Silva, but not George the Animal Steel. If you recall last week's episode of Raw, Draws defeated the Animal in a quick match, then beat the crap out of George afterward for good measure. And before tonight's match begins, Draws grabs a mic and tells Kurgan that he wants to fight him alone, so Golga and Giant Silva do indeed head backstage. Draws, by the way, is wearing plaid tights with a matching plaid stocking cap, which kind of makes it look like he's getting ready for bedtime. Not exactly the coolest look. Also at the beginning of this match, Michael Cole informs us that The Rock and Ken Shamrock will both be appearing on this Sunday's episode of That 70s Show. So stay tuned to the end of this podcast, because I may have a clip to play for you, since it technically marks The Rock's very first acting role. Well, outside the WWF. So, as you would probably expect, nobody cared about this match because it was Draws versus Kurgan, so at least it was kept relatively short. The finish came when Kurgan tossed Draws to the arena floor, but when he did that, Draws pulled, of all things, a broom handle out from under the ring. When Kurgan walked over toward him, Draws then hit Kurgan in the throat with it, pretty much right in front of referee Teddy Long, who somehow didn't see what happened. From there, Draws went to the top rope, hit Kurgan with a flying shoulder block, went for the pin, and that was enough to score the victory. Your winner, Darren Drozdov. And then, just like he did to George the Animal Steel last week, Draz continued to beat the crap out of Kurgan after the match was over, until Golga and Giant Silver re-emerged from backstage to chase him away. Yes, it certainly seems like this feud between Draz and the Oddities is now set up for a lengthy storyline, so you probably know what I'm about to say now, don't you? Yes, that's right. This was the final Monday Night Raw match for Kurgan. He'll appear on two more episodes of Sunday Night Heat, but after that, he's gone from the company only about a month from now. You'll recall that he started his run with the WWF in mid-97 as The Interrogator, a member of the Truth Commission, before he was ultimately repackaged as a fun-loving goofball with the rest of the oddities. After the WWF releases him, he does continue to wrestle on the indies for another couple years before ultimately segueing into a film career in 2006. And surprisingly, he has some pretty popular films on his resume, including 300, Sherlock Holmes, Pacific Rim, and most recently, Deadpool 2, which I saw but actually had no idea he was in. Now, if you recall, Giant Silva and Golga have also had their final matches on Monday Night Raw, so that means that after tonight, the oddities will never again wrestle another match on Raw. Probably for the best. But it is with that in mind that we must now send Kurgan and the Oddities to Wrestler Heaven.
Sorry, I just had to play some of their insane Clown Posse theme song there, since you'll never actually hear it on the WWE Network. But farewell, oddities. Your wacky antics brought us all to the verge of almost cracking a smile. From there, we cut once again to a bar somewhere in Victoria, Texas, where Vince, Patterson, and Briscoe are sitting at a table and eating barbecue. Vince tells the Stooges that he's heard that this is where Stone Cold usually goes for an evening snack, so he looks forward to seeing Austin's reaction when he walks in. However, when Vince tries the food, he hates it, so he yells for a waitress to come over. Briscoe then proceeds to berate the waitress for serving substandard food to Mr. McMahon, so the waitress takes a bowl of baked beans and dumps it on his head. Now, I realize that Briscoe was being a dick, but that waitress should probably be fired, right? I mean, that's no way to treat a customer. Come on now. So we then head back to the arena where The Undertaker's music hits, and we see that his awesome throne is positioned at the top of the ramp. Taker does indeed emerge from backstage and sit on his throne, with Paul Bearer, Midian, and Mabel also coming out as well. And speaking of Mabel, we are now informed that he is actually being called Viscera, and I'm pretty sure there was no explanation given for this whatsoever. They just put the name Viscera on the screen, and I guess we all have to accept that he changed his name. Sure, why not? So interestingly, Howard Finkel announces that the next match is a six-man tag team match, but only Midian and Viscera head to the ring. Taker remains seated on his throne, so perhaps this will actually be a handicap match for the Ministry of Darkness. And it turns out that their opponents tonight will be... The Brood, and I believe this is actually the first time we've seen all three members of The Brood do the Ring of Fire entrance together. Up to this point, we've pretty much just seen Gangrel enter that way, but now all three of them are surrounded by fire together, which admittedly looks much cooler. And funny enough, because they come up through the stage, they have to walk right past The Undertaker on his throne at the top of the ramp, but Taker just lets them stroll on by, even though he's supposed to be fighting them. Whatevs. So the bell rings, which means that yes, we are now underway, and for those of you scoring at home, this is indeed the first ever Ministry of Darkness match on Monday Night Raw. Spoiler alert, there will be many more, which could be either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your view of that particular stable. One thing in particular to note here is that Viscera is wearing sunglasses while he's wrestling, so he's really taking that Ministry of Darkness part literally, it seems. After only a couple minutes of action, the Brood decides to use their 3-on-2 advantage to overwhelm Midian and Viscera, but then the Acolytes run down to the ring and start beating the crap out of Gangrel, Edge, and Christian, so we have us a disqualification finish. And for the record, it doesn't really make the Ministry look all that strong in their very first match when they can't cleanly beat the Brood, who have been jobbing for months now. I mean, Christ, last week on Raw, Gangrel and Edge lost cleanly to the team of Road Dog and Al Snow. Not exactly a strong faction at this point in time, that's all I'm saying. So with the Ministry and the Brood brawling, a bunch of WWE officials come to the ring and try to separate them, but strangely, the Brood throws all the referees out of the ring. And ultimately, that proves to be a mistake, because the Ministry then proceeds to beat the crap out of all three Brood members. And when that happens, the Undertaker finally gets up from his throne and walks to the ring. Farouk nails Gangrel with a Dominator, followed by Bradshaw pulling out a fucking noose. Yes, you heard that correctly. 
Bradshaw picks up Gangrel and puts the noose around his neck, then they position Gangrel on the ring apron. And by the way, at this point, Jerry Lawler on commentary asks if using that noose is symbolic, which I had to chuckle about because his pal Michael Cole will end up using that same idiotic line during another similar segment at a later point in time, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So with Bradshaw holding the noose around Gangrel's neck, Taker puts his hand on Gangrel's head and pushes him off the apron. So yes, the Acolytes are now hanging Gangrel, and this actually doesn't look very safe. It also doesn't help that Midian is getting in Gangrel's face while this is going on, and repeatedly yelling, DIE, at him. Although really, if he's a vampire, hasn't he died already? Eventually, the Acolytes finally let go of the noose, leaving Gangrel clutching his throat on the ring apron. The Ministry then walks up the ramp, having once again caused quite a bit of carnage. And strangely, despite the fact that we just saw a man almost lynched to death, Michael Cole asked Jerry Lawler why the brood threw those referees out of the ring. Uh, dude, how about getting your priorities in order? I'd say that tossing some officials out of the ring doesn't quite add up to the attempted murder that we just witnessed. Call me crazy. So after that segment concludes, we cut backstage where Mankind walks up to Deborah, of all people. He subtly tells her, quote, I bought you something for your boobs. When she asks if something is wrong with them, Foley then says, and I quote once again, this is all real dialogue. No, as a matter of fact, I get a tingling feeling all over when I see them, but I'm afraid you're going to catch a chest cold, and in your case, that could be fatal. And so, with that in mind, Foley hands her a sweater. The WWF, where you can watch a hanging, and then a minute later, you get titty humor. Quite the balance. And it was at this point in the show that I was reminded that this episode of Raw is human sewage in television form. If I had to grade it on a scale of jobber to megastar, at this point, I'd firmly classify it as a fantasio. After commercial break, we then get highlights from Halftime Heat, which segues us back into the arena where your new WWF champion Mankind is heading to the ring. He gets a huge ovation from the fans, followed by massive Foley chants, so the crowd is certainly quite happy that Mick has regained the belt. So Foley starts talking for a bit, but he soon gets interrupted by The Rock. And I'll just go ahead and play part of this promo for you here, because it sets up another confrontation between these two bitter rivals. Now you have something that belongs to The Rock, and it happens to be $97,000. So Mankind, Bring the Rock is $97,000 before The Rock whips your monkey ass. Yeah. I think it's less than that now, kid. He's been spending it oh, all hey, day. Hey. Hold on a second now, Rock. You see, I feel a little bad about that. First off, there's no longer 97000 It's down to about seventy-two. <laughs> what? Secondly, I consider myself an honorable man, and I did say if you gave me the empty arena match, I'd return the cash, but I changed my mind. <laughs> what? He reserves the right to do that. He cannot do that. Just to show you, though, that I am a truthful guy, I'm going to agree with just about everything you said. You do dress like a million bucks. You do make millions of bucks. Why well, even look pretty damn good, too? But it is my humble opinion that you are, without a doubt, 
the biggest horse's ass. What? What? In sports entertainment today. He can't say that to The Rock. He just did. Now, Rock, I will admit, you have given mankind some of the damnedest matches I've ever had. So you want a rematch, Rock? All you've got to do is ask. Now you make your little challenges and The Rock accepted. The Rock has a little challenge of his own. In about two short weeks, Sunday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, The Rock proposes a match called Last Man Standing, which means there are no pinfalls, there are no submissions, and it also means that if you thought The Rock was rough on your candy ass in the I Quit match, let alone yesterday's heat match, then come St. Valentine's Day Massacre, The Rock will proceed to bash your living brains in like you ain't never felt before. Now, if you've got enough testicular fortitude, then you'll go ahead and accept The Rock's challenge. You want a last man standing match with mankind? You have got a deal. Oh! Uh-oh. It's going to be a massacre. The Rock figured your retarded ass would say that, but I'll tell you what. Mankind, in two weeks, when it's all said and done, and the millions... And millions of The Rock's fans are through chanting his name. And The Rock stands over you, the WWF champ. You're going to realize why The Rock is the great one. Why The Rock is the most electrifying man in sports entertainment. And why The Rock is, without a shadow of a doubt, the best damn WWF champ there ever was. If you smell what the rock is cooking. So there you have it. Mankind and The Rock will step into the ring yet again in the first ever Last Man Standing match at St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Now, I say the first ever Last Man Standing match because it's the first match to ever be called that, but The Undertaker did defeat, of all people, The Executioner in an Armageddon rules match at In Your House It's Time, where the rules were basically the same as a Last Man Standing match. Essentially, you have to beat your opponent so badly that he can't get to his feet before a 10 count, so there's a lot of potential for brutality there, because clearly The Rock and Mankind haven't had enough of that in their feud yet. Now, regarding that promo we just heard from The Rock, you may have noticed that his voice was cracking a little bit when he was speaking. And this is actually a pretty infamous promo, because at one point, Rock does end up pretty much losing his voice, breaking character, 
laughing at himself and saying, we'll get this straight, before he pulls out a bottle of water and starts chugging it, all while mankind looks on and laughs. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the full clip of this outtake, I assume it's on one of those WWE DVDs, but I did find a quick 7-second vine of Rock losing his voice, so you can hear a very brief snippet of it here. So there you go, even the great one has some not-so-great moments. After a quick break, we then get an alternate version of the WWF's Super Bowl commercial. Essentially, all the wrestlers basically say the exact opposite of what they say in the original ad, so here's proof that this actually exists. Most people have the right impression about the World Wrestling Federation. We are a violent form of entertainment. We always use sex to enhance our image. You know, as athletes, we couldn't give a monkey's ass about being good role models. We're not wholesome. Family. Trying to make the world a crummy place for mankind. Have a nice day. WWF attitude. Get it? Honestly, I'm not sure what the purpose was for the second ad, other than to say, see dummies, we were joking in that first version. Let us blatantly spell this out for you. Clearly, they have a lot of trust in their audience. From there, we once again go to Victoria, Texas, where Vince and the Stooges are now at a gun store. Vince says he has it on good authority that Stone Cold is, of all places, right behind a door in the store marked as employees only. Vince tells the Stooges that he's going to attempt to antagonize Austin in order to get him to hit him and breach his contract. As a reminder, Stone Cold can't lay a hand on Vince before St. Valentine's Day Massacre or the match is off. So Vince barges through the door of the gun store, and, well, I might as well just play that clip, too. All right. I know he's back there. Hey, Austin, I've been looking for you, you chicken s***. What's this? Who are you calling chicken s***? No, I, I'm sorry, sir. I, you looking for Austin or you looking for a bullet? No, no, I, I'm looking for Stone Cold Steve Austin. If you're looking for Austin, he's down at the bar at Archie Blues. I, I, I'm sorry, Ar Archie Blues. Archie Blues. Archie Blues. Get it straight. So, yes, Vince goes into the back room where, wouldn't you know it, he sees a bald guy wearing a Stone Cold t-shirt and baseball cap. He flicks the guy on the back of the head, but when he turns around, we see that not only is it not Stone Cold, but the guy is also holding a shotgun. Apparently, the chairman's desire to extract revenge on Steve Austin has almost cost him his fucking life. But fortunately, the redneck store owner doesn't blow his head off, but instead he tells Vince exactly where Austin is right now, since, uh, apparently the whole town is aware of Stone Cold's whereabouts at all times, I guess? He says Austin is at a bar called Archie Blues, so I did some quick Googling, and I did indeed find a bar with that name, but it's in a town called Bandera, Texas, which is about three hours from Victoria. I don't care how good their beer selection is, I'm assuming Austin wasn't driving that far for a drink. Probably a different Archie Blues. But anyway, from there, we once again head back into the arena, where it's time for our next match, WWF Hardcore Champion, The Road Dog Jesse James, and Al Snow, accompanied by Head, versus the Acolytes in a hardcore tag team match. 
If you recall last week on Raw, Road Dogg and Al defeated Gangrel and Edge in a hardcore tag team match, and then, in a backstage promo, Al told Road Dogg that he respected how hardcore he was and proceeded to challenge him to a two-out-of-three falls match for the hardcore title. Road Dogg accepted, and then they were both jumped from behind by the Ministry of Darkness, setting up tonight's match. So, to no one's surprise, the match devolved into a garbage brawl right away, with some of the highlights being Bradshaw picking up the timekeeper's table and throwing it at Al Snow, Road Dogg jabbing a pencil into Farouk's eye, and, of course, almost all the participants taking an unprotected chair shot to the skull. Pretty much par for the course at this point. The two teams then started brawling through the crowd, with each member pairing off with an opponent. Farouk and Al Snow brawled into the parking lot, while Bradshaw and Road Dog were fighting amongst the fans. Eventually, Bradshaw and Road Dog made their way back to the ring, and it was at this point that we got a rather strange spot. A fan in the front row wearing a DX t-shirt started taunting Bradshaw, and he then splashed beer all over him. And as you might expect, that proved to be a mistake, because Bradshaw then proceeded to punch him right in the face. And I have to say, this was clearly a planned spot, but Jesus Christ, it really looked like Bradshaw hauled off and legit slugged this dude right in the mouth. I hope that isn't the case, but with JBL involved, well, you never really know. So we cut backstage where Al Snow was trying to put Farouk through a table, but before he could do that, Viscera showed up, grabbed Al, and tossed him through a random pile of wooden boards that was lying around. So yes, a pile of shit tossed Al Snow into a pile of shit. Back in the ring, Road Dog was still brawling with Bradshaw, but then Farouk returned from backstage. From there, Bradshaw picked up Road Dog, and Farouk aided him with what I guess you could call a spike power bomb right through the table. Both men pinned Road Dog, referee Tim White counted to three, and that means that your winners of this match are the Acolytes. And when the pinfall was registered, you could see that Viscera and Midian were now at ringside as well, along with three hooded druids who were dressed all in black. The druids lined up and faced toward the ramp, and then the Undertaker's music hit yet again. Taker then stood at the top of the ramp, and, well, let's listen to what happens next. There he is, the Phenom, the Undertaker tonight led the dismantling of the broom by the Ministry of Darkness. Look at this. What is going on, Michael? I don't, I don't understand, Ken. Look at the Undertaker. Look at his eyes. Are, I mean, they're, they're gone. What is this? I don't know. What? So as you heard there, the Acolytes and Midian removed the hoods of the Druids to reveal that it was Gangrel, Edge, and Christian underneath. Or, as Michael Cole put it, the Druids were the broods all along. Nice one, Cole. 
But yes, the Brood have now joined the Ministry of Darkness, even though earlier tonight the Ministry kicked all three of their asses, and in Gangrel's case, they attempted to murder him. But, uh, I guess that was just their way of proving themselves? That is quite the initiation. Bigger picture, though, I think having the Brood join the Ministry obviously makes sense since both factions are rather dark and have that sort of gothic feel to them, for lack of a better term. Not to mention the fact that Edge and Christian are actually really good wrestlers, whereas the other guys in the Ministry clearly are not, so that's obviously an added benefit of bringing them into the group. Definitely a smart move, even if the way they joined made no goddamn sense. So after a commercial break, we then see Road Dog grab a chair and walk backstage. He catches up to Al Snow and asks him where the hell he was while he was getting his ass kicked, to which Al responds, quote, Some 500-pound gorilla slammed me through some boards over there. Oy. Road Dog then says that he thinks Al left him alone on purpose so he'd be weakened for their upcoming hardcore title match at St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Al denies it and goes to walk away. So Road Dog nails him in the back of the head with the chair, then hits him with it one more time while he's on the ground. Dick move by Road Dog, but honestly, if you're Al Snow and you willingly turn your back on a dude who's holding a chair, frankly, that's kinda on you. So after a commercial break, we once again cut back to Victoria, Texas, where Vince McMahon and the Stooges have indeed tracked down Stone Cold Steve Austin at Arky Blues. Will Vince be successful at provoking Austin and getting him to breach his contract before the pay-per-view? Let's take a listen. You in the Royal Rumble, and it's eating you up inside. You know damn well it is. Come on, stand up. Yeah, come on. Come on, Austin. Hit me. Come on. I came all the way from this godforsaken place to be. Come on, Austin. What's the matter, huh? Come on, you chicken. Come on, Austin. Stand up. Hit me. What's Hit the matter it. with you, huh? Come on. Damn it. Come on, Austin. Eat. Go ahead. I done told you once, you dumb son of a bitch. And if you got a hearing problem, read my lips. I'm not going to hit your ass here in Victoria, Texas. I'm going to wait till it's nice and legal when I get your ass in that steel cage. Do you understand me? You chicken shit. Hit me, you son of a bitch. Go. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Come on. Hit me. Damn it, hit me. Hit him. Look at me. I'm not shaking like you. I done told you. Come when on, I bitch. get your ass in the cage, your ass is mine, and you will know that Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. And like I said, I'll say it one more time. I will not hit you tonight, but I can't speak for, as you put it, these kind of people. So uh, as I make my exit and head to the house, uh, you guys show uh, Mr. McMahon a uh, real good time at my expense. What the hell are you talking about? Oh, guys, oh, wait, 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 w
So, as if this episode of Raw couldn't possibly get much better, now we get a segment where Stone Cold Steve Austin backs down from a fight from Vince McMahon. How wonderful. I get that it makes sense from the perspective that Stone Cold doesn't want to breach his contract, but Vince is literally right in front of his face calling him a chicken shit, and Austin does nothing about it. I feel like the Stone Cold we all know and love would be beating his ass, no matter what legal hoops he would have to jump through. Although, as you heard there, Austin does leave Vince and the Stooges alone in a bar full of angry rednecks, so it certainly seems that he ultimately ended up getting the better of the situation. And yes, Jerry Lawler compared it to a scene out of Deliverance, but let's hope that it doesn't quite go down that particular route. I guess we'll find out next week. And it was at this point that I remembered that this episode of Raw was worse than a colonoscopy with a cattle prod. If I had to grade it on a scale of jobber to megastar, at this point, well, I'm afraid I have to do it. I'm giving this one the full mantire, ladies and gentlemen. We have reached peak awfulness. Congratulations to all involved. And from there, we cut back into the arena where it is now, finally, at long last, time for our main event of the evening, Triple H versus Kane in a steel cage match. The future CEO of the WWE versus the reigning mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. I think we could all see that one coming back in 1999. One particular thing to note, when Triple H does his pre-match Let's Get Ready to Suck It intro, he sends a message to China to, quote, Get a good look, ya big bitch, as though he was auditioning for the upcoming cinematic classic Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo. That's a huge bitch! Another thing to note, referee Earl Hebner is outside the ring sitting in a chair by the cage door, but there is no referee inside the cage, so presumably the only way to win is by climbing over the top of the cage or simply walking out the door. And, without getting off on too much of a tangent, it always bothered me how walking out the door was an option for cage matches. Incredibly stupid, but that's a whole other topic. So early on in the match, Kane attempted a move that I had never seen him try before. With Triple H down on the ground, Kane stepped on the bottom rope and kind of springboarded himself into the air so he could get additional height on an elbow drop, but Hunter moved out of the way. It actually looked pretty cool, but I'm not sure if he ends up making that a recurring thing. If not, frankly, he should. And shortly after that, Kane did his raising of the arms gesture, followed by the pyro exploding on the turnposts, and then the lights in the arena illuminated the ring in red, just like they used to do for Kane's early matches. Again, he did this while the match was already going on, so it kind of came out of nowhere, but I did think it was a nice little surprise. But then, of course, just 30 seconds later, the red lights went away and the regular lighting returned. Incredibly bizarre. Why change the lights in the first place if you're just going to change them back 30 seconds later? Ah, uh, who gives a shit anyway? I'm, I'm done trying to figure out what they were thinking for this god-awful episode of Raw, quite frankly. So eventually, Triple H starts trying to crawl out of the ring, but Kane grabs his foot to prevent him from reaching the floor. However, Hunter manages to grab the chair that Earl Hebner was sitting in, so when Kane brings him back in, Triple H now has a weapon. And sure enough, Hunter immediately proceeds to use it as he nails Kane in the head with, yes, you guessed it, an unprotected chair shot to the skull. Gotta get in our full quota for the night, I suppose. So the match started picking up nicely toward the end, and the crowd got more and more into it. Eventually, Kane hit Triple H with a choke slam and went to walk out the door... But X-Pac showed up and slammed the door on Kane twice. If you recall last week, X-Pac invited Kane to join DX, but instead, 
Cain responded by attacking him, so it looks like Pac got a bit of revenge this week. Cain then decided to try climbing up another side of the cage, so X-Pac climbed the outside and started kicking him to prevent Cain from getting out. Meanwhile, with Triple H climbing the other side of the cage, China then ran out from backstage, entered the ring, and attempted to grab Triple H's foot. Instead, however, Triple H kicked her, knocking her down to the canvas. From there, Hunter climbed over the top of the cage, jumped down to the floor, and yes, he touched the ground first. Your winner of the steel cage match, despite China's attempted interference, Triple H. Hunter and X-Pac then started heading up the ramp, with Kane walking after them, and we could see that Kane was somehow covered in blood on his head and left arm. Not sure what happened there, maybe he got legitimately busted open when X-Pac slammed the cage door in his face, or when he took the chair shot to the skull. Not 100% clear on what happened. In fact, in this week's Wrestling Observer, Dave Meltzer doesn't identify what the cause of it was either, but he notes that Kane actually ended up needing to have several staples to close the wound, and as a result, he doesn't end up wrestling at house shows over the next week or so. Ouch. But anyway, with Kane seemingly ready to chase after the two members of DX, China grabbed a microphone and said this. Listen to me, Triple H. This thing between us is not going to go round and round. It's going to be short, and it's going to be painful. Two weeks, Triple H, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Happy Valentine's Day, sweetheart. What, What does that mean? So there you have it, Triple H was victorious tonight, but his fun may be short-lived because it appears that China has challenged him to a match at St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Will he accept the challenge? Or, more importantly, will that match even take place? To be honest with you, I have no idea because I don't remember Triple H and China ever fighting each other, so I will be surprised right along with you. But we're not done with this episode just yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas. Out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Not a rock and stone coal on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they clucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap This week, Raw was once again pre-taped while Nitro was, as usual, a live show, and yet again, it didn't matter. Continuing a very strange trend, the pre-taped episodes of Raw have actually been getting higher ratings than the live ones, as Raw's rating this week bumped up from a 5.46 to a 5.71. Meanwhile, Nitro dropped down from a 4.99 last week to a 4.68 this week, so Raw was actually victorious by more than a full ratings point. Yes, it seems like the gap is starting to widen, folks. But of course, for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching over on the TNT network on this night instead. Barry Windham and Kurt Hennig defeated Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko, and actually I bet that was probably a pretty good match. Van Hammer defeated Kenny Chaos, and this match was noteworthy because, 
Afterwards, a former ECW superstar debuted by attacking Van Hammer with his signature Singapore cane. He then cut a promo, and, uh, let's just say he didn't necessarily make the best first impression because, well, it's a bit subtle, but you might be able to hear that he messes up a certain wrestler's name. I was the first man to wrap barbed wire around my body and jump off the top of a steel cage through a table on somebody. In case you couldn't guess, that was indeed ECW legend The Sandman botching his first WCW promo. In fairness, though, he was probably drunk. Although, I guess I shouldn't call him The Sandman because that name was trademarked by ECW, so instead, during his brief WCW tenure, he is given the name Hack. That's H-A-K, Hack. Certainly, Enter Hack doesn't quite have the same ring to it. But as you heard there, Hack debuted and called out Bam Bam Bagelow, so obviously he's going to make a good first impression and defeat Bam Bam, right? Well, no. Bam Bam ends up beating him clean in six minutes, in a hardcore match, no less. I think you can probably tell that Hack's WCW run ain't gonna be all that memorable. Continuing on, Kidman defeated Lash LaRue to retain his WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Scott Steiner defeated Chris Jericho to retain his World Television Championship. Scott Norton defeated Ernest the Cat Miller. And then, before your main event, they trotted out Michael Buffer to do the introduction. And thankfully, because Buffer is so well-prepared, there is absolutely no chance that he'll butcher a wrestler's name even worse than when Sandman said Bam Bam Bagelow. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the WCW Monday Nitro main event. Tonight, here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, a special heavyweight eliminator match. The winner of this match will go on to Super Brawl on Sunday, February 21st, to face the reigning United States heavyweight champion, Brett Hitman Clark. Are you ready? Am I ready? No, Michael Buffer, are you ready? Because you don't seem to be even the slightest bit prepared to do what is literally your only job. You almost have to admire how little of a shit he gives about the company he works for. Did the check clear? All right, let's get this over with. Allegedly, $25,000 per appearance, folks. Why does WCW go out of business again? I, I can't remember. So yes, finally, in your main event, Scott Hall defeated Chris Benoit to become the number one contender for the United States title. He will now go on to Super Brawl and face Brett Hitman Clark. Well, except for the fact that, spoiler, Brett loses the title next week, so Hall actually ends up facing someone else. All right then. And finally, I'll wrap up this WCW segment by reading a quick excerpt from the book The Death of WCW by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. Quote, The latest idea to turn everything around instantly was to emulate the WWF as closely as possible. 
Prior to the February 1st Nitro, Booker Kevin Nash called a meeting and announced that there would be some programming changes, most notably a move towards a more Raw-like program with lots of taped backstage vignettes. Therefore, everyone was going to have to show up on time so they could film their segments. On the very same night the speech about the pre-tapes was given, an angle was shot in which Ric Flair sentenced Eric Bischoff to sit over a dunk tank as his enemies threw baseballs at him. During the course of the broadcast, virtually none of the ball throwers managed to even hit the target. So yes, if you want another reason to watch this episode of Nitro besides all the name-botching, you can tune in to see Eric Bischoff not getting dunked in a dunk tank. With that being said... I guarantee it was still a better show than Raw. Which provides a fitting segue into the Raw synopsis. So I think my feelings were pretty clear throughout this show. This episode of Raw absolutely sucked, and it was probably one of the worst ones I've watched since I started doing this podcast. Aside from the main event, the matches were mostly mediocre to bad, the angle with Stone Cold backing down from Vince's challenge was idiotic, and the brood getting their asses kicked and then joining the Ministry of Darkness made no goddamn sense. I guess one positive would be the fact that they have now retconned the Terry Runnels miscarriage, which I guess makes the angle slightly less offensive, but not by much. Pretty much everything on this show was completely skippable, unless you can somehow track down the unedited clip of The Rock's promo, where he completely loses his voice and has to start chugging a bottle of water. And as a side note, if anyone can tell me which DVD or show that clip is in, I will totally give you props on the next episode of this podcast. But yes, to sum it all up, the February 1st, 1999 episode of Monday Night Raw was complete garbage. Please go out of your way to skip it at all costs. I would recommend watching Halftime Heat, but just be prepared for that very bad forklift ending. And finally, before we conclude, here are a couple quick notes from this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer. In a follow-up to what Sal and I discussed last week, Dave Meltzer reports that Billy Gunn had been scheduled to win the Intercontinental title from Ken Shamrock at the Royal Rumble, but apparently Billy has been, no pun intended, a pain in the ass backstage lately, so instead they had him tap cleanly to Shamrock at the Rumble. The WWF apparently asked Dan Severn to do a shoot fight against Steve Blackman, but Severn turned them down because he and Blackman are friends in real life. The WWF subsequently offered Severn two options, take a buyout and get released, or stay in your contract and get jobbed out for the next year. Needless to say, he took the buyout. And on a related note, the WWF is currently rumored to be interested in bringing in Butterbean for a shoot fight, but clearly that would never happen because it wouldn't make any sense. Piggybacking on that excerpt from the death of WCW that I just read, Meltzer also reports that Kevin Nash told the WCW locker room that everyone needs to be willing to do jobs. I'll repeat that. Kevin Nash told other people that they need to be willing to do jobs. Try not to suffer an aneurysm thinking about that one. And finally this week, Goldberg was offered a guest appearance on the television show ER... But WCW shot that idea down because the filming would have conflicted with a Nitro taping. Spoiler alert, ER ends up being the number one show in all of television during the 98-99 season, so would it have been worthwhile for WCW to have Goldberg appear on it? You be the judge. But instead of Goldberg, ER ended up casting an actor named Nils Allen Stewart, who played the role instead. That character was a professional wrestler named 
and I swear this is true, Kornberg. If you don't believe me, look up the ER episode called Sticks and Stones and try to picture Goldberg in the role of, uh, Kornberg instead. But anyway, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. And also, don't forget patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast where you can get all sorts of bonus content. I have nothing further to add about this episode, and so, as promised, I will now leave you with a clip from The Rock's very first acting role, portraying his father, Rocky Johnson, on the episode of That 70s Show, which aired a few days after this episode of Raw. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. There he is. Mr. Johnson, you gave that team of midgets an ass-whooping, sir. Well, you pile drive a little guy, and the whole crowd turns on you. You know, when you're standing there wondering what they're booing about, you get bit on the kneecaps. Look at my knees. Pigeon bites. I wonder if you mind uh, giving my son an autograph. No. No autographs. Look, pal, I might be the only guy in here who's actually killed a man. Give the kid an autograph, and then no more autographs. Yeah, it's really nice, bringing your kid to a wrestling match. You know, I got a son, and one day, he's going to become the most electrifying man in sports entertainment. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Uh, Let me make that out to Brad Foreman. No, no, I don't think so. Um, it's Eric Foreman, capital E-R-I-C. Yeah, let's see. His nickname is Red. No, it's not. It's it. <laughs> Stop kidding around, Red. <laughs> What are you talking about? I know she was not pregnant. I examined her. I know she was not pregnant. She has never been pregnant. Right now?